Garçon, coffee. Welcome to the Coffee and Death Sticks podcast. My name is Kevin Romani. And I am Danny Marchant. And surprisingly, it does not feel like it's been 20 years, but we are talking about the 20th anniversary of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first in the trilogy uh, that Danny and I are both massive fans of. I think Danny a bit more so. Uh, This is, I think, the first time we've talked about a movie where we've read all of the books as well. So that's something we can talk about a little bit, too. Um, But we will be looking back at the 20th anniversary of The Fellowship of the Ring specifically, though we'll be talking, I'm sure, a little bit about the other movies in the franchise and the upcoming Amazon series. But first, let's focus on The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, This is my favorite movie. (laughs) I just don't... uh, (laughs) It's... yeah, I I um I love this movie. This movie was a huge thing when I was 11 years old. I I didn't see it in the theaters. We saw it on DVD. My brother bought it um, at I think Sam Goody in Stoneham at Redstone Shopping Center in Stoneham, and he's like, "Let's watch uh, Fellowship of the Rain." And we all sat down thinking like, "Oh, this is going to be like a stupid fantasy movie," and we knew it was connected to the Hobbit cartoon that my dad rented once and we hated it. And we said, you can never pick out a movie again. We hate this movie. So we were just going in thinking, this isn't going to be, this isn't star Wars. What is this? Is this silly forest film? Um, Yeah. I think it, I mean, it just completely changed. It's one of those movies that just kind of kicks you into a different trajectory in terms of your interests in film and pop culture. This, 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 you know, literature, like everything. This is a huge moment for me in my sort of movie movie watching history. Um, and yeah, over time, it just every time I've seen it, which is many, many times <laughs> at this point, uh, it just is it's always good. It, it's always it always works. And I think a big thing for me was during the initial stages of the pandemic on quarantine, I mean, my first thing was, I'll just rewatch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's been a while. You know, it's been a couple of days, so I'll just rewatch it. And, um, yeah, it was just, it's great. And that's I think that's when it crystallized that this is a perfect film. This is my favorite film. And uh, I'm just, uh, I can't believe it's been 20 years. Yeah. It's your favorite film? Yeah, it is. That you, you've reached that point. You've, it really has. Ready to yeah. say it. Yeah. I'm ready okay. to say it, yeah. I and it's hard. Thank, thank, thank you for sharing. That. You're welcome. Because <laughs> there's lots of movies that are like really, really like special to me, and like you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. um, love Star Wars, like as we've discussed a couple times on this podcast. Um, but no, this one is just uh, it's just uh, it's just very special to me. Yeah, and I'm very similar. It's absolutely a top five for me. And I did see this in a theater, and I remember that fall being more of the attention initially being on Harry Potter. Cause it's also the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So I can remember that fall being like a big, big movie season fall. And then, you know, early winter. And this one was not really on my radar. It was not a, a story franchise. I was familiar with prior to this, but really at this point, you know, you mentioned star Wars. I was really only like a massive star Wars fan and, 
you know, whatever Disney and Pixar movies. I think that's something to do with our age. We were both 11 when this came out. Uh, so when this came out and I tied this series a lot to the matrix also where, you know, the whole trilogy kind of took place in a, in that early 2000s span, the matrix came out in 99, but uh, these were two of the first movies that made me think about movie making filmmaking at that age, because like I said, it was really just star Wars. It was like, I really liked those star Wars movies. Like, and my VCR would just play those on repeat endlessly. Like I would finish return of the Jedi and pop star Wars back in. But this was the first new thing like that. Like nothing else had really made me feel that way for a movie. And like I said, for it, it was such a surprise too. Uh, when I saw Star Wars, I saw it in theaters when it was re-released in its special edition format in 97. And my dad and stepmom took that, uh, took me to see that. And they were really pumping its tires before we entered the theater. It's like, this movie is incredible. Wait until you see this. And, you know, they had the background knowledge. But mm-hmm. I then saw this with my, my mom and stepdad. And this is like our ser- movie series. And none of us knew what to think. So there was no built up anticipation. Yeah. It was just, you know, here's this movie. And I was immediately absorbed in this world after rewatching it for the first time in a while, actually I rewatched it this weekend. It's incredible how quickly the world is established and you just buy into it. The mm-hmm. prologue normal. I, I would think every screenwriting movie making class would tell you to not do a prologue in the way in which they do a prologue, mm-hmm. yet it works perfectly. And I really can't imagine it without having that prologue because there's just too much in this world to jump in blind. You still learn what, what another brilliant thing about this is you still learn so much about the world and the characters as the movie progresses but that whatever it is, seven minute, again, seven minute prologue sounds like a death knell of a movie, but mm-hmm. it, it establishes so much, including the tone, including, I'll just say this now. I thought I was going to wait until a little bit later. I would say this has the greatest film score of all time. And that's coming from like the biggest John Williams fan there is. Uh, this score is unbelievable. It sounds like something you've already heard before. And it gives you so much sense of the world and the characters. And it just has its unique sound to it that I had never heard before that I still haven't really heard that, that well. Uh, And I think that really drives this movie home and is, and is a major, major factor to its success. And like I said, there, there, we're going to wax poetic about this movie for the rest of this podcast, but I, I, if I had to give it one quality above else, I cannot believe how quickly and clearly it establishes its world. I think it's also, it, it set, it sort of sets the tone that this, this may be, um, and we're talking, we're going to sort of kind of focus more on the theatrical version. Mm, yes. There's two versions of each of these films. Um, the, the, uh, the orthodox view is that the extended editions of all three are better like, they're just better. I disagree with that completely. Heresy! Uh, I love the extended editions of these films, but I do disagree that as movies, as, like, adaptations of something, uh, the, this one especially, and the second one as well, are perfect adaptations of basically unfilmable books. 
Um, as you said, there's so much to cover in terms of the backstory of this world. And in a book, because it's a book, it can be sort of doled out to you piecemeal. Yes. Like it works in the book that you basically learn everything in the Council of Elrond chapter. Yes. Like, I don't even remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That works as a, as a literary technique. Um, it's also Tolkien having no idea what this story is and he's figuring it out as he writes it, which is, <laughs> which is, which is entertaining. Um, but yeah, this, this seven minute prologue sets all that up and it hits that tone, which is the tone of the books as well. That, that knife edge between like history and fantasy. And then obviously Tolkien was like a really religious uh, a really religious guy. And so it has sort of like a biblical, uh, you know, that the scope and this, you know, it's evil and, and huge, huge battles, but it doesn't, you don't have to be religious to like these movies or to enjoy these books. Um, I know that cause I'm not, <laughs> and I, and I love both of these things. Um, and so that prologue happens and then you're dumped right into, uh, you're just dumped right into the Shire and the most like idyllic, sort of like country lifestyle and you're just waiting. When is all that stuff that I was just shown? When is that going to come back into this, into this world? Um, there's that great transition. The end of the prologue ends with, uh, you know, Kate Blanchett says that the time will come when the time will soon come when hobbits will shape the fortunes of all. And then we meet a hobbit and you're like, Oh, interesting. Where's this going? Um, I had not read the books before I saw these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I read each, I can't remember, I can't remember in what order I, when I, when I started reading them, but I had not, the movies was how, the movies were how I, uh, experienced the story the first time through. Um, and yeah, it's just like three acts, three hours and it ends and you're thinking I could have watched three more hours of that. Yes. And that was another thing too, that really stuck with me seeing this at 11 was, this did not feel like a two hour and 50 minute movie. Certainly my attention span, sadly, as an 11 year old was probably better than it is now. Uh, so I probably wasn't as attuned to that yet. <clears throat> Blew by and it was like, what do you, what do you mean it's over? I, mm-hmm. I want more of this immediately. Even I think at the time, the subtitle Fellowship of the Ring did not lead me to believe that this would be a trilogy, even though Star Wars was also at the forefront of my mind. So I should have been more aware of that going into the film. Uh, But yeah, I did want to mention too, that you brought up the theatrical versus the expanded edition. And for the longest time I had it as gospel too, that they were all of the expanded editions were better. But as you said, I think for like a Lord of the Rings aficionado for a scholar for wanting everything Yes, the more the merrier, no pun intended, (laughs) the more the merrier. Uh, Any additional scenes, an extra 45 minutes, great. And then for the longest time, that was how my family and I watched these movies. It would be like a fucking Saturday would be just watching one of these movies and maybe half of one of the other two. Uh, I remember having to change discs, but then watching Fellowship and Two Towers again for the first time in a while when we were in college, it was like, ooh, these are better. The biggest reason being was the pacing. The pacing is great in this first movie. Again, with how, its ability to dole out information and yet 
it feels like a thriller. It feels suspenseful, almost like a horror movie at times, mm-hmm. the first one. I love how many different genres and tones and feelings you have throughout the two hours and 50 minutes, I think, before the credits hit. It's a superior film, without a doubt. It's There's nothing wrong with the expanded editions. They're exactly what they say they are. It's, like, it's the movie plus extra scenes that you want. But so many of the scenes, you see why they cut it. Uh, yes. After watching it this most recent time, I think what stood out to me for the best change is Baromir. How Baromir's arc unfolds without all of the extra scenes is much better, even mm-hmm. though they make him out like more of a dick. But I think that works for the, the story purposes better. Yes. Uh, in the theatrical version, Baromir is his introductory scene. He's very, as the kids would say these days, actually, this expression is probably already too old, but he seems very sus pretty <laughs> immediately. He's odd to Aragon, and they have a strange dynamic, yeah. and then he's pompous, and you know, Cape Blanchett says to Frodo later in the movie, he will try to take the ring. You know mm-hmm. of whom I speak. And I remember even at 11 saying, well, it's obviously going to be that guy, that guy with the beard. Uh, it, but it Clearly really, Trevelyan from GoldenEye. Clearly. Oh, yeah. I don't believe I knew that when I watched the movie, but I afterwards. Did. I did. Okay. Yeah. I Because as we discussed in our James Bond episode, I wasn't that familiar with the movie GoldenEye. I was just familiar with the video game. So... Uh, but yes, but of course, Sean Bean has been in a numerous things since. But it works. Uh, the theatrical version works so much well for his art, so much better for his arc. And why it also works well is even in the, I don't want to talk about them too much, but in the subsequent films, when you learn a little bit more about Baromir and Gondor and the state of that location and his family, you then start to sympathize with his reasoning for being upset he actually has a great reason to say we should use it like we're the ones we're the you know we're the ones at the front uh, uh keeping the enemy at at the gates long has my father the steward of gondor kept the forces of mordor at bay by the blood of our people are your lands kept safe give gondor the weapon of the enemy let us use it against him you cannot wield it none of us can one ring answers to Sauron alone. It has no other master. And what would a ranger know of this matter? This is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. Aragorn. This is Isildur's heir and heir to the throne of Gondor. I think he has the best character arc within this one movie, and cutting out all the extra scenes that I think soften his edge is a detriment to that character arc in the expanded edition. I agree, and I think, um, because his turn in the book feels a little bit more, not abrupt, because he he is arguing with the characters almost constantly. and I mean, I'm going to try and avoid because there's so many little, there's so many differences between the books are the same as the movies, except for the thousand ways that they're different. And it's all little things, big things. But in the, in the theatrical version, Boromir 
is a guy that kind of acts like a dick, but you get the sense like he's probably like I feel like he's not completely a dick. And then, uh, spoiler alert: Sean Bean dies in this. Movie. <laughs> I'm a surprise to absolutely no one. Um, his death, which is what the climax of the film is is built around. Um, that's another thing I'm going to get into in just a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, is this guy realizing how serious this journey he's been on realizing that it, it's just so much more powerful. You know, it, yeah. it hits, it hits him way too late, but it still hits him. And he realizes, okay, I get it. This isn't about the strongest, the bravest, um, who's the most important, who is the, which kingdom has the most, uh, you know, social clout. And it's not about any of that. And he finally gets it. That scene where he, you know, tells Aragorn that he would have followed him, you know, my oh. captain, McCain. like, I, I mean, if I think about it any longer, I will start to tear up. It's just, it's, I, it's uh, perfect. It's perfect. I, it's like, I did tear up, yeah, which was I, yeah. incredible because I, and I told my wife later and she looked at me uh, very concerned. Uh, <laughs> she's like, oh, the movie you've seen a thousand times. And I said, yeah. And not only that, I had never had in any previous viewing Maybe it was something about maybe it's being older and that sort of beauty thing. of this um, movie. You cry yeah. at the same parts. You cry at different parts. You find <laughs> it ages with you. Lord yeah. of the Rings will age with you, and um, yeah. So it's a, it's a very powerful conclusion. It also helps because the way they approach Aragorn in this movie mm-hmm. is so much stronger than his characterization in the novels. In the novels, he is a good yeah. guy. Who knows exactly what he wants to do he just needs to get around to it someday in this film he does not want to be the sort of mess- messianic figure that he is he would rather just sit in the woods and look for mushrooms and you know what I mean? like he doesn't want to do any of this he's filthy he's a filthy hobo and wants to spend his life as a filthy hobo mm-hmm. and boromir's death and him realizing yes. like, it, it instills in him this thing of like, I really got to, you know, this country, like this country that I've probably hardly ever been to, I need to do something. So it's just, it's such a, it's such a nice, powerful, and it's, it's not even the heart of the movie. Like there's so many scenes like that in this movie. This scene is filled. This movie is filled with scenes like that, that yeah. are just like, they take the ideas from the book and they, distill them and adapt them and make them cinematically interesting and arresting and involving. Boromir's death is, is an, is an off screen quote unquote event in the books. You don't really, you don't see it happen. You just see the aftermath. Yeah. So the, the, the power of it is just completely lost. And here, like I alluded to earlier, big multi-million dollar movie made all the money. It's big action finale just uh, guys fighting in the woods and it's mm-hmm. still my favorite finale to any middle earth related movie it's this is still my favorite finale yeah and it's, it's funny still the most <laughs> arresting it's still the most involving because it's like it's just so simple the hobbits are in danger boromir is in danger where's frodo it's it's yep. that simple and it works it, perfectly and it's funny because it's not all together different from what the ending to the unexpected and unexpected is it an unexpected journey yeah journey and unexpected unexpected runtime is what (laughs) (laughs) that one has a similar setting and circumstances but how much more effect it doesn't it right 
it does, but yeah. it, it's in your memory right now. Oh. In your memory, you're picturing just a purple red haze of just like CGI, right? Well, like, that's what I mean. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. I'm my point is it's the same sort of setting. It's the same yes. sort of circumstances, but how much better the filmmaking is in this version versus that version? Because in this one, it's just all guys in costumes running around. And by the mm. way, the costumes and makeup in this movie are unbelievable <laughs> i podcast how fucking good the yeah. <laughs> film. this this podcast is actually just going to turn into us talking about the amon hen sequence because you're right i had mm-hmm. the same thought is boy this is so charming and so <laughs> minimal in, in a sense that this yes it is just the first movie but mm. how much bigger the late just even the two towers and the return of the king those two climaxes are and those are wonderful in their rights but mm-hmm. this works perfectly for the themes and the arcs of this specific movie. And that, yeah, it's such a great scene too, because it's the first action sequence that's in daylight and the camera's mm-hmm. a lot stiller mm-hmm. uh, where it's a little, they do a little bit of the shaky cam and Moria and there's some CGI going on. If yeah. there's any fault in this movie, it's that, and it's just a product of its times. It's that the CGI, some of it has not aged well, but it was yeah. 2001 and that's fine. Like when I watch it, I can, I can appreciate and understand that. And most of it is really good. Uh, but some of it is a little, has a little bit of that video game feel to it. Well, it's, it's weird. It's like the cave troll looks perfect, but yeah. Legolas yeah. swinging around the cave troll. Yeah. Like a computer game. So it's this weird mix of like what they could get right versus the limitations of their, Exactly. Like, the close up of the cave troll, it's like that just seems like they just shot it like that's a cave troll. Like that does not <laughs> feel like a CGI thing. But then you see Legolas's acrobatics, which at the time were the coolest thing. Oh yeah. But Legolas just did. <laughs> and speaking of Harry Potter, I, I think I saw Harry Potter first and then this second, mm. but that was also jarring when they were when they both had a troll at almost like the same yeah. point in the movie in terms of mm. the structure but anyway yeah so that the amon hen sequence having that in daylight was really the first time you got to see these characters are all fucking badasses because like mm-hmm. you, you knew it in the earlier scenes but i think this mm-hmm. one really was able to establish how excellent they are all at fighting which yeah. is like that is the the 11 year old in me is still like i love watching legolas just take yeah. people out it's cool like, yeah, it's cool. It's like, and, and well, you know what the stories are. They're not people. Yeah, they're not, they're not people. They're yeah, people. like like Legolas, I, I think of all the, the characters in the Fellowship of the Ring has the obviously the least of a character. So just using him as a plot device to just be a badass is totally fine mm-hmm. with me. And they've absolutely yeah. earned it. Uh, it's yeah, great. Again, it's like the, the books are that he's, he's, he's copying that tradition of like the old verse that he loved, epic poetry, where you don't necessarily show the fighting and the battles. You just kind of talk about it. Yeah. And your, your deeds are what, you know, this guy did all these things. Peter Jackson was like, that's something I'm going to bring out of the books. I think for a movie, it'll be really entertaining to watch an elf, a man and a dwarf just kick ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? And it is, it's very entertaining. And you said it well too. I, Another thing I didn't really consider. I think the first the first time I saw this, I remember, I remember a lot of the first viewing of this, which is surprising. Mm. I I've forgotten a lot, but I I really distinctly remember seeing this movie. And another thing that stuck with me, even though the whole movie 
didn't really like Baromir, didn't really see as much of a purpose for him. But mm. that death sequence is, I, I think, I would say it's still his most memorable death sequence, even though he has another very famous one. Uh, but I would, I'd put that and Spock probably of the two mm. most emotional death sequences and most well done and earned it. And just all of the circumstances involved. Uh, the Spock one gets diminished a little bit by the next movie having his name in the title, but for but for this, it's it's like you said. Not only does it serve as I was saying, it, it's a perfect story arc for Baromir uh, for all the reasons that you described. As he was very insular and uh, you know wanted Gondor to get the recognition it deserved and have the the. Um, the, the defense capabilities of fighting Mordor and all of that. One of the support from yes. Middle Earth. And then in yeah. all of this moment, he just totally put everything aside to save these two. And he gets to go out like a badass because again, seeing, you know, uh, all right, I'm going to have another sidebar here. Having a main bad Urukai was a wonderful decision by Peter Jackson. Lurts. Lurts. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I bet Danny knows the name of the specific Urukai. Yes. Uh, very smart decision. M super memorable character for saying about six, seven words during the whole movie. On the oh, on the Having that as a, like a something the audience could recognize having a, a villain to decipher mm -hmm. from the rest. But uh, so that was great. But then I don't think I ever really appreciated that his death was also a catalyst for Aragorn's story arc that continues into the next movie. So it's just a, it's a really good movie. It's a really, it's a really it awesome and like, you know, he's, he's wearing, he's wearing Boromir's. Um, yeah. I don't know what to call them. I'm going to call them hockey pads. He's wearing Boromir's hockey pads as like, you know, he's taking on that responsibility. And it's like, again, it's like this little movie in microcosm. This is important, but the more important thing is we need to keep fighting them so that Frodo and Sam make it across the river. Because the actual, the actual important thing is that Frodo accomplish his task. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily about the fights. The fights are important, but really the main thing is we hope, let's hope Frodo makes it. Um, and, and, you know, and Bormer, he just wants to, he wants to save. I mean, that line, when he says they took the little ones, it breaks my heart every single time. Mm. Like he just wants to save Marion Pippin and he's, he fights and he loses, but that doesn't matter because he's still fighting was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, which is a theme that echoes through the whole trilogy. It's you fight, you fight because, you're faced with something that needs to be fought. So you do it, whether you lose or win, because mm -hmm. the important thing is that you tried because, and it, and, all, and then it comes down to, because you're your friends, you know, you can tell this is, this is from the mind of someone who lost almost all of his friends in world war one. The general consensus amongst diehard lifelong Tolkien fans that had read the books for decades before these movies came out, the consensus is like, oh yeah, those are these these are great. These are these are really good. Um, nothing will ever touch my memory. I had an English teacher, Mr. Riley, who said he enjoyed the films very much, but nothing will ever be better than the movie he had in his head when he would read the books in the woods, which is like, okay, that's the most delightful thing I've heard. But I think <laughs> I do think that 
these these stand up. All three of these movies were nominated for Best Picture. Yes. And The Return of the King wins Best Picture. I want to say the first two were legitimate contenders. Oh, and yeah. as, aside from these three movies, Mad Max Fury Road, I believe, and I guess if you want to say Inception, are the only sort of genre movies that have been nominated for Best Picture in the last yeah. 40 years. Like yeah. none of no movies with this mass appeal have get nominated for Best Picture ever. So for these three movies to all be nominated when there was a minimum there were a minimum of five selections shows how Academy voters are it's like we have to nominate they're so good that we have to nominate them. That's the thing. I remember we 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 were alive to witness all this and I remember I subscribed to Entertainment Weekly all through middle and high school. So Yeah. It was just the consensus like yeah, they're fantasy movies about elves and orcs and wizards but like how can you be a serious film critic and not be like 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 these are so good like just as films. It's hard to resist their their pull. And I think a lot of that has to do with Howard Shore, as as we oh my talked gosh. about earlier. Yeah. And I'm the second biggest John Williams fan. But yes, <laughs> I also think that the score for these movies are just they're they're the best when their Frodo has, has survived his uh, spear that would skewer a wild boar and they're all impressed with his mithril shirt and they hear the orcs regrouping and Gandalf says and the drums and the music starts to pick up and Gandalf says To the bridge of Cosmo. Every time I'm just like, I love this movie. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, this is as good a time as any to discuss how perfect Ian McKellen is. I'm surprised we didn't say his name at, and we haven't even really said the character's name or Ian McKellen's name yet, but may I briefly take a sidestep before I would like to return to Ian McKellen, but I don't want to forget when I was a kid, I, I was always annoyed at Liv Tyler in these movies and I felt it was, I didn't like that. This is how much I cared about these things. I didn't like that she was listed third in the cast listing because mm. I felt it was just a nepotism hire. And I didn't, and she's in all three posters. And Wait, to me. Nepotism, just because of Steven Tyler? Oh, yeah. Like I thought she just got the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, maybe oh. I'm misusing nepotism, but basically I'm right, saying right, right. she was famous only because of who her dad was, is what I she was not so much. Yeah, that's a misuse of nepotism oh. because it's not like Steven Tyler got her the role. Um, but anyway, so I didn't like that she was listed third just because she had name recognition, mm. and I didn't like that she was on the posters because I'm thinking to myself, it's like, well, Viggo Mortensen has a bigger role, and like all these yeah. other characters have bigger roles. However. Watching this for the first time in a while, I actually think she's very good in this movie. I oh, yeah. her her delivery of "If you want him, come and claim him" is perfect. It's really well done. And she also another thing I didn't really appreciate that all of these performers do a wonderful job of, in particular her and Ian McKellen, is they do a magnificent job. A magnificent job using the languages and just selling them as if they are actual languages. Like oh, they deliver yeah. their dialogue with these fic, fic, bleh, fictitious languages. 
and do so perfectly. You totally believe that there are actual languages. So I just wanted to give a shout out. I want to apologize to Liv Tyler for being 13 years old and not liking her because she was listed higher than Viggo Mortensen. If you want him, come and claim him. Ian McKellen is Gandalf. I mean, just, I had never seen him in anything before, and I just immediately loved him. To me, Spock dying, Rathacon is great, but to me, Gandalf dying is my other, like, yeah, all, like, very moving. It's just like, that moment of the looks on all the, the hobbits are just like sad. Cause they just assumed Gandalf just wasn't, it's Gandalf. Like nothing's ever bad. He's a to Gandalf. Yeah. Nothing, nothing bad is ever going to happen to us as long as we have Gandalf and the hobbits are seeing everyone's seen for the first time, just how powerful Gandalf is that he's not just an old man that he's facing down this, this, this demon. Um, and then for the older characters who know better, Aragorn and Legolas and, and Gimli and Boromir, they they just cannot believe like this guy has has wandered the lands for generations and now he's just dead. Like that's it's I, I love that sequence. Everyone mourning in their different in their different ways. Gimli wants to just get back in there and just kill some more orcs because he's so like heartbroken. Boromir is very concerned about you know, give them a moment for pity's sake. Like he just wants them to, he wants Aragorn to just stop for a second so that they can grieve. Legolas doesn't even seem to understand what death is. He's like processing mm, death yeah, for the yeah. first time. He's yeah. like, Oh, like we're never going to see him again. Um, and then there's that like, frankly, terrifying shot of Frodo turning around and he's broken and he'll never be the same again until his final shot in the whole trilogy where he smiles for the first time. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. These they're good movies. I'm sorry. I just teared up a little, a little <laughs> up. I apologize. It's almost yeah, like so it's such a powerful moment and it's, it is, it is cheapened because he comes back. Um, yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's the same issue with Spock. He's not that great in the second one. Ian McKellen has been very vocal that he, Finds Sarm, uh, he finds Gandalf the White very boring, uh, but he's great in the third one as like sort of a general, like a field marshal. Like Gandalf's always, it's always great yeah. to see Gandalf. But one of the big draws about the Hobbit movies for me was the chance to see old, bent, possibly stoned Gandalf just kind of grumbling his way. Like I love that. I love Gandalf the Gray. Yeah, it was welcome yes. to see Gandalf mud, the Gray is a mud on his boots. He's kind great of an character. asshole too. That's what makes yes. him such a great character. Like he he's a little troll. He loves to fuck yeah. with people in the first one. He <laughs> it kind of reminds me of um, you know, like Yoda, how he's behaving with Luke when he's messing with yes. Luke at first. Like that's kind of like a Gandalf the Grey feeling for me. Yes. Uh and I agree. I mean, that the way that death sequence is filmed and talk about again the Howard Shore music uh is is really well done. And I think the only reason I mentioned the Baromir sequence is because 
Gandalf comes back, that it, that does kind of cheapen it a little bit. It does. Which I didn't know until seeing the trailer for the Two Towers. So for a while, away. yeah. yeah so, <laughs> which is interesting. That almost was like a precedent center, but setter. But for a while, that was to me like, why, how do you? You can't really get a better death sequence. But you explained it so perfectly. How how in such a brief moment how you capture all of these different characters reactions to it and the casting of Ian McKellen. And I would say maybe the other one who I would put in this league for this series is probably Kate Blanchett. Uh, mm. But talk about needing to sell the world quickly. Those two performers, both Kate Blanchett and her prologue, and then Ian McKellen, just in his first scenes in the Shire. It's like, he is just a character you immediately know. Uh, he is kind of the traditional mentor archetype, archetype. But like I said, he's he's kind of an asshole too. Like he, he's kind of a grumpy old man. He's grumpy. But he's also he's he's so, but he's so heartfelt too. Like he then when he you know the speech he gives to Frodo later about you know dealing with responsibility. I think that's another mm-hmm. amazing theme of this movie. Speaking of Baromir, I keep coming back to him, but uh, this movie does such a great job with, yeah, you know what shit happens and you get dealt some really bad circumstances, whether you're a little Shabbat from the, uh, Hobbit from the Shire, a Shabbat, you're a Shabbat. Whether you're a little Hobbit from the Shire or you are this messianic king or you are the steward who have to protect this kingdom. Um, and yeah, just because of geography, you have to do so, you have to sacrifice more than anybody else. It's, it's clear that these books were written with both world wars in mind. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. There's nothing bad about stories that are simple. Good versus no, evil. No, when they're, I was just about to say, something I wanted to compliment this <clears throat> on earlier is how I, I love that it doesn't get murky. It's just a good nope. versus evil. It's perfect for its audience. It's perfect for these stories. Uh, the only kind of gray area-ish, I guess, is they, they get with, is Gollum. And yes. a little bit with like the corruption of the ring and, you know, Frodo, Frodo ultimately at Mount Doom. Aside from that, it is good versus evil, no questions asked. And like you said, I think that's appropriate for this story. I don't think that's lazy. I think that needs to be told every, every yeah. few generations. And like, this was our, this was our star Wars. And the hero's journey is not necessarily a bad thing. It became a bad thing because everyone just kept ripping off these books and these movies, <laughs> but yeah. in and of itself, you know, it's like jaws jaws kicked off the blockbuster thing, mm-hmm. but watch jaws. Jaws is a great film. Like, Jaws has nothing to do with Transformers. Like, that's not Jaws' problem. Um, all these ripoffs and cash-ins of what Percy Jackson and all that stuff. Oh, that's another I mean, good there, one. There's some good stuff. I mean, the Harry Potter movies, good movies. Like, all of them, pretty good movies. Uh, but for the most part, so many other cash-ins and just, like, frantic attempts to, what do we got? 
and it doesn't work because it's just the stuff they're basing it off of doesn't have the same power and they're 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 not taking the same care that Peter Jackson did. I mean, the, the Golden Compass movie, just a complete <laughs> I col- colossal, yeah. a colossal blunder because they just tried to turn it into Lord of the Rings. They recast yeah. actors. They put Ian McKellen in uh, because, well, he was in Lord of the Rings. They have insert shots of Christopher Lee because he was in Lord of the Rings. Like, it's just, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but the stuff that kicked all this off is is still good. It's, it, does, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's almost like movies should only be made when there's an artist or a group of artists who have a desire to make them and studios shouldn't just try to mirror previous hits. Yeah. It's almost like that. It's almost like when a guy like Peter Jackson and and his wife and his other writing partner come to you and say, we have a, we have an adaptation in mind for the Lord of the Rings that you let them make it. And you know, this one also kind of ties into when we were talking about Dune of like making multiple movies at one time, th- this one also kind of predated the like mm-hmm. planning a universe. So I was, I'm fine with that. They were like, yeah, we, this, this team has a vision. Let's let them tell their story. And they delivered beyond expectations. I'm sure mm-hmm. uh, they're perfect movies, but I, I certainly agree with you that this is my favorite. As a kid, it was my least favorite because there were a few sword fights. But that, <laughs> that, that, to quote Mr. Plankett, uh, yeah, if you liked if you liked Revenge of the Sith the most because it had lava in it, or if you <laughs> didn't like The Empire Strikes Back as much because it's the most boringest, yeah, yeah that, that <clears throat> yeah. was me with this one for like until co- I think somewhere around like graduating high school, college, yeah. I, I recognize this one as being the best of the three. Yeah, because it's it's always special to be your first introduction to a world, and it feels so believable. Because it's not just Peter Jackson; it's the most like collaborative film trilogy of all time. Like you get that watching the documentaries, you get that in people's retrospectives. Like these movies are still one of a kind. The way people and the way everyone who worked in them talks about them, they're just like this wasn't like anything else, and there's really not going to be anything else like this really. No, ever. Probably not, not until the Amazon series. Yeah. I mean, see, this is the thing. This is, this was a podcast where there's like no cynicism because you both just love this movie and there's no like, like with star Wars, there's just that fact that it's like it's star Wars. Like there's just, there's that, that feeling's always there. Lord of the Rings for the longest time. Cause I, the Hobbit movies aren't as, aren't as good. They're not, but I never really like felt like they ruined anything. Like I just was like, those aren't as good. Uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy is still this special thing. And now they're just making a TV show. Yeah. Prequel and they're making a Rohirrim spinoff. And it's like, they've come, they've come for it. They've come for my precious. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We can't end on that. So we'll just end on saying, no, that was actually a perfect thing to end it on. They're coming for my precious. Uh, But yeah, so while there are some potentially risky further interpretations of the world coming. But not this this franchise. Yeah, this is its own thing. I agree. It's its own thing. Yeah. It's its own thing. I I don't like the Hobbit movies that much, but they didn't. The only they sort of tiptoe into getting into the way of continuity that I don't like that we've previously talked about ad nauseum. Yes, um, but you found some examples of things in the books that kind of. But anyway, that's a whole. Kevin thing. and I are yep. massive nerds. 
<laughs> we debate we've debated whether or not the Hobbit movies uh are are false because Gandalf mm. seems to know nothing about the ring mm. in the Fellowship of the Ring. And yes. Things that no one cares about, so we're gonna stop. But we there. do. But we do. But ne- next year, 20, 2022, we'll do our tenth year retrospective on the Hobbit and Unexpected Runtime, and we can discuss all this next year. That sounds good. Yeah, because we'll, we'll probably every other yeah. year. And well, with the two towers too, I think we'll have mm-hmm. a little less to discuss since we talked about a lot of the series now. So I love that. We'll yeah. do a little two towers, little Hobbit unexpected journey. And uh, yeah, that, that'll be good. And then hopefully that Lord of the Rings series will be delayed on Amazon and we won't have to talk about that yet. But well, happy 20th to the fellowship of the ring. And thank you for listening. I want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life.